Yep. Good. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that, well, that's good. I hope he gave you um, a little riff on the Greek word. That Greek word for abide is helpful because it, it really has the connotation of staying put, um, which then fits with what we've talked about on Sunday mornings, particularly finding your spot and working your spot. So you have, I was thinking about this on the walk over, how in finding your spot you have sort of broad categories which then narrow when you talk about working your spot. So very broadly your spot is, this is from Sunday morning, you're part of the body of Christ. You might be an arm, you might be a leg, you might be a finger, you might be an eye, you might be something else. But the point is that's your overall spot. And then um, working your spot is how you exercise the life of a Christian within the congregation. So that's, you know, Christmas sharing, um, you know, pick your thing, going down south to help people rebuild, all those sorts of things. That's working your spot. So broad to narrow, finding your spot to working your spot. And all of that is from the Greek word for abide. Um, uh, let's see, the, yeah, the Greek word is mente from uh, meneto. So uh, it, it, it really does have the connotation of staying put, okay? Uh, so chapter 3, I guess we'll start there. Um, let me just read the two verses before it because they really do go with this chapter. And now, little children, abide in him, so stay put in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. It's interesting, the sin that, that so what he, what he contrasts with being confident is not guilt, but shame, which is interesting. Sometimes shame uh, has more, is more of a motivator than even guilt today. So he doesn't say, you know, when you stand before the Lord, you don't want to be guilty. He says, when you stand before the Lord, you don't want any shame. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's exactly what the Lutheran Confessions say. Good works are necessary, not because they gain for you salvation, but um, they're representative of the fact that Christ has redeemed you. This is exactly what First John, First John, yeah, not First Peter, First John. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay. So then, chapter three. See what kind of love, uh, see what kind of agape the Father has given to us that we should be called the children, the techna of God. And so we are. So what he calls you is what you are. And this is where Lutherans have gotten goofed up in the past a little bit. Um, they talk a lot about how the Lord declares you to be something you're not. You know, you're a, you and I are damned sinners, but he says you're forgiven. But we never move to the logical conclusion, which means if he declares you to be forgiven, then you actually, in your existence as a Christian, ought to live forgiven. And that's what this says here, that we should be called children of God. He doesn't just say that we'd be called children of God, but then he says, and so we are children of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So you're known by Christ. It stopped me along the way here. I'm just reading. Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, it's not. Uh, yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. Know us as children of God. So the world does not know to whom you belong. And this is why the scriptures often talk about, you know, you're aliens. Um you're aliens for any number of reasons. Um, you live differently than the world lives. You look differently than the world looks. Um, as I said at an eighth grade graduation sermon once, you're all going to go to high school and be weird. Of course, that's not good for an eighth grader, because what does an eighth grader not want to be? Weird. weird, yeah, right. But if you're a Christian, you are weird, because you bear a different reality in your flesh, you live a different way, you look differently because you have a tattoo on your forehead from baptism, and you do different things. So yeah, the, the, um, the know there... Um, Would it be more appropriate to say understand us? Yeah, the, the scriptures use a variety of words for know. One is um, sort of a marital knowing, and that's the one you know eighth graders always laugh at. So if you know your spouse, that means you have marital relations with your spouse. That's not what this is talking about. This is the world does not understand us. Um, the world doesn't understand the Father. 
um, because what it sees in you is something utterly otherworldly. And something utterly otherworldly really is Eden. So, the, so let's just sum this all up. The world doesn't understand you. I mean, look at your life. What are some of the things in your own life the world doesn't understand? Good, that's a first start. Although there, I do take the point. Going to church is a great start because there are lots of people who don't go to church. What else? When, yeah, exactly. You give how much to the church? You could buy, you know, 2,000 shares of silver, which, by the way, was down about 8 cents yesterday, but I think it's on the up and up. Okay? Yeah. Why do you give 10? You give 10% to the church? What else do you do that the world doesn't understand? Yes. Yeah. Although there is a resurgence, um, there is a resurgence for sort of equality among people. And, and frankly, you can find lots of very kind pagans, right? Um, and you can find lots of very smart pagans. This is why Luther says, if you have a choice between a, a good or a great pagan doctor or an average Christian doctor, who do you go to? Go to the pagan. Yeah, go to the pagan. Okay. So the prerequisite for me finding a doctor, a dentist, doesn't matter, is not whether or not they're Christian. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So two things that Pastor Nelson once put on these big, you know, like deep sea snorkeling goggles, and preached a whole chapel sermon with goggles on. Of course, the kids thought it was funny, and then he said, you know, this is the way that this is the way the Christian works. This is your faith goggles, right? So you see the world differently than the world sees the world. So um, both when people are your enemies, you see them differently. This is why First Peter says, or is it Romans? Went someplace in the New Testament. It says, um, you know, the way you get back at your enemy is not by doing evil, but by doing good. Yeah. And then the I think it's St. Paul says, then you heap burning coals on their head. So if you really want to get back at someone, do some good for them. Send them a cake. Right? Green cake. That's right. How many of you had everything green at your house yesterday? <laughs> we did. Every dish on the table, except for the pork, was green. Emma's milk was green. Abby's beer was green. You can appreciate this. You're Irish. Yeah. I mean, Mary Catherine, come on now. Oh, we had green baked, green mashed potatoes, but they looked a little Christmassy because they were redskin mashed potatoes. We had peas. We had, the pork was normal pork color, thankfully, or I couldn't have eaten it. That may have, that may have been a stretch. Green milk, green Miller, although I had Guinness. So as Emma said, how come your Guinness isn't turning green? I said, it has a different color. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny to see how kids react to that. You pour milk and you know you put a little drop of green food coloring in the bottom and pour some milk in and Emma's like, how did that happen? <laughs> we didn't tell her. Yeah, she has no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Then she said, then she said, how come the Guinness isn't green? I said, well, the little leprechauns are working on that for next year. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know what? And, every, and people look at me and say, what kind of parent are you? I turn our food green on St. Patrick's Day. That's what I do. That's right. Yes, yeah, she did. Well, actually, yeah. And me, exactly. So the knowing here is understanding. They can't understand you. The world can't, they can't imagine that you would act the way you'd act. And, and the interesting or maybe sad reality is when that same thing happens within the church. You'd expect within the church that everybody would understand everybody else. When it, goes, when it goes poorly is when people in the church say, I can't believe you give 10%. Because it means even the church doesn't understand itself, right? So there is, and understanding is not just, you have to hear this as, it's not just rational. Um, this is why St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, you know, the wisdom of the wise I will thwart. Intellectual wisdom is not all that matters. So understanding here is more than just you can figure it out. Case in point, you have lots of little kids who understand what it is to be a Christian much better than even adults do. In fact, sometimes their understanding is purer and it's more wholesome and frankly, it's more holistic because it's the whole person, right? Rachel. It, it's, yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. Um, it's a, 
let me say this, it's doubly difficult when you're a pastor. Because <laughs> every situation I'm in, they expect that. And that's not the case. I mean, I've been at your house. <laughs> so, but the point is, um, we're not pietists. So there's a fine line between living the Christian life and being a pietist. Um, and there's also, so then you have, then you have St. Paul saying two things. St. Paul says, when in Rome, do as the Romans. So there's this sense of if you're a guest at someone's house who doesn't live that way, you ought to be a guest the way, they're a guest, the way they live. At the same time, St. Paul says, you know, don't offend the weaker brother. Now the interesting thing is, so that's true, don't offend the weaker brother, but I wonder how often they would be willing to admit that they're the weaker brother. They wouldn't. That's the hard part. So I once, I think we've told you the story. There was once a um, sort of a big shot dinner with some theologians. One was a hardcore evangelical, meaning like he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't, he would never turn in a bracket for the NCAA tournament because that's gambling, you know, all these sorts of things. And he was out with um, evangelicals as well, but who weren't as rigid. Well, one guy orders a glass of wine at dinner. He says, the, the other evangelical says, that offends me. He goes, well, I won't drink it so long as you admit that you're the weaker brother. Conversation stopped right there. But that's the reality, which is Christ doesn't say live in a box, live in a bubble, live like a pietist, um, and yet we don't want to offend them, and yet they're very unwilling to say that they're the weaker brother, so how do you live? What do you do? And I tend to think in, um, in an area like this, we often go to the extreme of being almost like pietists. You put all the wine away before they come over because heaven forbid they know you drink. You know what I mean? Um, the other extreme is to say I don't care. And that's not good either. So maybe a happy balance, like don't have a glass of wine when you're with them, but let them know you do enjoy a glass of wine. Or three. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and we don't want to be. You don't want to be a kind of church where um, rules don't matter. So you live as the world lives. At the same time, um, Jesus came into this world, and he didn't, as the as the scriptures say, he didn't. He wasn't offended by the world. He lived in the world. He lived his life. He ate. He drank. He partied. He did all those sorts of things. Um, and that's what we're called to do as well. So this is why, this is well, it's a longer discussion for another time. But if you flee the world, that doesn't make you more of a Christian. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. So live your life, but be smart. Be wise. Exactly. Anything else? You all okay? So the knowing here is understanding. They can't wrap their, well, I shouldn't say wrap their, they can't even begin to think or understand or believe that somebody would want to live this way. Especially, and this has been the sermons for the past few weeks, especially when you realize that being a Christian doesn't make life easier, it actually makes it harder. I mean, who would want in on this? Really? And so, and so while we say it's not about getting to heaven, at a certain point it is about um, the reward to come. It's about making this world a better place and the reward to come. The reason why the world does not know us, verse 1, chapter 3, is that it did not know him, which makes you and Jesus equivalent. If it doesn't know you, it doesn't know him. If it doesn't know him, it doesn't know you. Beloved, we are God's children now. Sorry, we are God's children now, which means at one time we weren't. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, or when it appears, it, in the Greek it doesn't say him, it says it, when it appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's a lot there. Okay? So what is this saying? Give me the first thing that comes to mind when it says, when he appears, we will be like him. What does that mean? Go ahead. Yes, good. So oftentimes, um, and you're not wrong, oftentimes we switch right into, what is this? <laughs> 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 
Pastor Nelson next to a about 12-foot bowling pin. Do you want to frame this? I didn't know what it was. It was like he was meeting with an archbishop or something. There you go. <laughs> okay. So um, we often think of this phrase, when he or it appears, we shall be, and actually the key is, like him. We think of this as, judgment have an E. I suppose it can go either way. Because grammar, as with the world today, anything goes, right? There was a time when grammar was rigid and objective. Now it's anything you want. Like me, I'm always comma happy. When I have Abby read my dissertation, she's like, take all these out. My response, hey, in grammar, I can put a comma anywhere I want now, right? So we often think this refers to the judgment, okay? Um, and so then you have a long time to wait until you will be like him. What else could this refer to? When he, or better yet, it appears, we will be like him. Well, that's what we got to figure out. Good. Okay, now we're, now we're narrowing a bit. So judgment, specifically when the marriage feast comes. When heaven appears, good. Keep going, Carol. Still is what? Yeah, it is a scary thing because you, well, he's good at, he's like the Roto-Rooter. He's good at cleaning that kind of stuff up. What's that? Hey, I'm just trying to speak on your level. Come on now. <laughs> I'm kidding. Roto-Rooter actually appears, appeals to me. That's, that's, okay, so when it appears, we will be like him. And you know that um, Jesus uses metaphors and analogies all the time. So yes, most literally, um, most literally, this appears, or this um, this refers to the judgment. But there's more than just a literal meaning in Scripture. There are other instances where he appears and we will be like him. And the point I want to get you to is this meaning, which is its theological meaning. So literally in the text, what this refers to is, when Christ appears at the judgment, you'll be like him. But there's a deeper meaning than just some historical, literal meaning. There's also this theological meaning, which is when he appears theologically in the life of the church, you will be like him. So where does he appear in the church? Well, he appears all over the place. Um, he appears, you know, he swims in the font at baptism. Um, he clothes himself with a word in the viva vox, the living voice. Um, he speaks into your ear at absolution. But where does he appear? Yes, but you have to have this first. Yeah, I'm getting to the I'm getting to the punchline, and then we're getting to you. You're the logical conclusion. I'm the punchline. Okay. The punchline is where does he appear most concretely or tangibly, where you can say, "My Lord and my God." In the Eucharist. In fact, you know, that's the proper response when the host and the chalice are elevated. We sing the Agnus Dei, Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. The proper response at that point in the church has always been, my Lord and my God, because he's there. Now, the logical conclusion is, once he puts himself inside of you, however dirty that might be, then he appears all over the place. He appears wherever you go. Okay. So then, he appears when you love your neighbor. And particularly, I would say, when you love your enemy. Okay? So um, I would push you to sort of read this as a Eucharistic reference um, even more than a Last Judgment reference. Last Judgment, yeah, that's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. But uh, Jesus appears six days a week at the altar whenever he comes with his body, blood, soul, and divinity to the Eucharist. Now the point is, just look at the text. Beloved, so you are loved. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. It's coming. 
But, but the not yet means you're in the process of being transformed. Okay? Doesn't, the Lord's not just going to show up someday and say, wow, you are all at zero on the sanctification scale, and I'm going to put you all at 11. That's not how he works. He takes you from zero, dead in your trespasses and sins, and slowly moves you up the ladder so that when he appears, maybe you're an eight, an eight and a half, and nine, and he's going to make you a full blast ten. Make sense? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet fully appeared. But we know that when he appears at the altar, or when it appears, the Eucharist, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The Eucharist is full blast Christ for you and not against you. That's who he is of his nature. Okay. Now granted, he can get upset with you, and he can get upset with me, but that's not who he is by his nature. Okay? And everyone who thus hopes in him, who receives the Eucharist, purifies himself as he, Christ, is pure. Make sense? So what does the Eucharist give you then? The Eucharist uh, makes you beloved, makes you a child, it sanctifies you, makes you pure, and most importantly, all these things bundled up, what does it do? It makes you like whom? Jesus. Exactly right. Like Jesus. So um, it, it'll take sort of a change in perspective. Um, and this is the whole point of not living just for heaven. You live here and now. Well, if you're living here and now and you have no hope but the last judgment, that doesn't make any sense. If you live here and now and you have the hope of the Eucharist, you can actually get through the day. This is why, now this is all in real time, so you know I have to sort of think through this a little bit longer, but it seems that the Christians who are most concerned about the last judgment are oftentimes non-sacramental Christians. And I don't mean concerned in that they don't think they're going to get there. What I mean is they can't wait for the last judgment. So they write books like Left Behind, because that intrigues them, Christ's final return. Well, if you had Christ at the Eucharist, you wouldn't be so concerned about when he returns on the last day, because guess what? It's going to look strikingly similar. He's just going to, you know, he's going to look like a Palestinian. He's going to look like a Jew instead of like a big host in a chalice, right? Child. Child, you're not sending these notes to anybody, are you, Betty? <laughs> you can get it all online if you want to listen to it later. People have been known to do that sort of thing. All right. I had a joy group where I was, I was telling, uh, we've been going through the office of the ministry with a joy group. It's always great because I love them because they're so honest. And you remember this a couple weeks ago. No, they actually tell you what they think and what they mean. And so we're going through the ministry, and I look at, we're going through Walther, and I said, yeah, this, you know, he was accused of having three affairs, and then the women recanted. Woman from the back, remember what she said? Are you making this up? <laughs> I said, why would I make this stuff up, you know? Yeah, exactly, it's too good. So, you know, I'm not making this up. All right. And everyone, chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And purifying, um, to speak in sort of uniquely Lutheran terms, refers more to your sanctification, your becoming holy, than to your justification, to your being forgiven. Okay? Um, yeah, more on that later. Everyone, so now he's going to switch gears. He's talking all about everyone who makes a practice of the Eucharist. Now verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, so you notice what he's played off against each other, the Eucharist and sin. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is law. What's lawlessness? Oh, yeah, that, good. So you took it further than I would, but that's exactly right. It's, it's ultimately chaos. What else is it? Yeah, I was actually thinking just more basic than that. You guys are good. Yeah, uh, good. So it's, um, yeah, and you will hear this in the vicar's sermon uh, in a couple weeks um, because he's preaching on John 4 and the woman at the well, which is in some sense extreme lawlessness. 
you know, hey, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've got five husbands, and this guy isn't your husband. Okay? So extreme lawlessness is chaos. What else did you say, Carol? You said something. Yes, selfish, me against world. What else? I mean, these are all good. What is it? What does it fail to, to read and to recognize? Yeah, the ten words are meaningless, or at least to you or to me. Meaningless. Okay. So. Um, and as you know, the ten words are words, not laws, because they give contour to the life of Jesus. So if you, if you find the ten words meaningless, you also find Jesus to be fairly meaningless. Now, but listen to what he says. And this is, you have to think of this in opposition to people who fall into sin. One of the great pastoral, um, I won't say troubles, one of the great pastoral difficulties is to discern when people are falling into sin and practicing sin. Those are two very different things. Um, falling into sin is, I shouldn't have done that, and I'm very sorry about that. Um, and that may happen multiple times where it almost looks like it's a practice, but it's actually, um, it's actually a weakness. Okay, It's actually a weakness. On the other hand, you have people who practice sin. And that's where, what's the sign of someone who's practicing sin? Yes, I was going to say unrepentant. Exactly right. So people who fall into it and feel guilty for it, repent and try to get better, they may do it again. I mean, alcoholics, pick any, usually it, it deals with addiction oftentimes. Um, but those sorts of folks want to get better. If you don't want to get better, you're in the practice of sinning. So everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, therefore also practices a neglect of Jesus. And if you just read the, the first three verses in this chapter, the first three verses were all about a practice, of, a practice of loving Jesus and welcoming Jesus and receiving Jesus. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, who rests in him, who finds a spot in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That's a little scary. Now they live a what kind of life? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. I was hoping you wouldn't say that, Betty. Keep going, Holly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, I often say two things to kids on Confirmation Day. I say, now, now you, have the, you have the possibility of doing two things. Welcome to the church. Now you don't have to tithe, and you can vote me out. <laughs> I said to the Joy Group on, on Wednesday, I said, you know what the scariest thing about Confirmation Kids is? If they really wanted to throw somebody out, they'd get all their friends together and have a big vote. Because once you're confirmed, you got to vote, <laughs> right? Now, that's scary. So um, what happens to those kids? I don't think you'd ever say the word didn't take root. Um, but oftentimes, the word takes root, it grows up, and then it gets trampled underfoot. Um, but it can grow back again. And so, you know, we often say there's sort of this, there's a time in everybody's life where they fall away from the church. I sort of get tired of saying that because it makes it sound like it's okay. But it is, a, it is realistic. There is a time in people's lives, not everybody's, where they, where they fall away or they struggle. Well, yeah, not even, yeah, falling away is a little too active. Like they really don't want to be there. There are some points where they just, that's just not what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. It's not like they say, I hate the Lord, I hate the church. and I, It's just, it's not on their radar. I mean, go to college, getting up on Sunday morning on your radar? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Um, but I think the church fathers are helpful because the church fathers often say, um, the Lord fishes with a big net and a barbed hook. So he casts a big net, which means everybody can be in. And he fishes with a barbed hook, which means it's hard to get out. Anybody seen Swamp People? I love that show. 
I love that show. And last night, Abby cannot watch it with me. I watched it last night as she put the girls to bed. It was in between, it was halftime of like one of seven games and I went to Swamp People. I love it. I love it because it's the biblical model. Um, it was the season finale and a guy caught a 17-foot, 700-pound alligator. This is what they do. They, they, like, you know, they try to catch alligators and then they shoot them and they pull them into the boat. And, but have you ever seen an alligator react to being caught? It goes absolutely nuts. That's how people are. That's how people can be in the church. They try so hard. You know, they spin, they kick, they, you know, throw their tail around. They don't want to come back. But at some point, now the Lord doesn't shoot you. <laughs> so don't think I'm going there. At some point, however, at some point, people give up the fight. And the Lord sort of reels them in. The interesting thing about this, this swamp people is, as, as strong as an alligator can be, very rarely does it get off the hook. It can stay there for days fighting, and it doesn't get off the hook. That's the way the church is. I mean, people can go for years and fight, but at some point something will happen or the Lord will finally get after them and he can sort of reel them back into the boat, right? And that, and, so, and sadly, it usually happens with traumatic experiences. There are deaths. There are things like that. But that's the Lord doesn't cause those things to happen to bring people back in, but he uses the experiences of life to draw people back into the boat. Or even further down than that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. And then once they're back in, they got to stay put. One of the worst things the church can ever do is to tell you, be like Peter and get out of the boat. Peter should have stayed in the boat. I told you when I preached at Bethany Naperville, and I said Peter's sin was he got out of the boat. And right above me was a sign that said, be like Peter, have faith, get out of the boat. <laughs> they didn't invite me back after that. Okay? But Peter's sin is he got out of the boat. Stay put. Well, you got to wonder if the Lord actually meant it in that way. Or if, or if he knew Peter was going to do it, Peter got out, he started sinking, and the Lord said, oh, boy, here we go, Peter. You're supposed to be the first among equals, and this all, yeah. That, yes, it might be. Exactly. Yep, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Yeah, you know you do, but do you want to? Okay, this is the difference between the life of a Christian and the life of a non-Christian. We acknowledge the fact that we are going to sin, but that doesn't mean we're okay with that. And this is, and again, this is part of the trouble with denominations that are very focused on forgiveness. God bless us for being so focused on forgiveness, but what often happens is we talk about forgiveness as license. So I'm forgiven, therefore I can... Or even, and, and I, actually, I actually don't think. So the point is, yes, anyone who keeps on sinning practices lawlessness. We all practice lawlessness at some point in our lives. The goal is those experiences be fewer and fewer in number. It doesn't always happen. And believe me, I fully subscribe to you're always a sinner, you're always a saint. You wake up in the morning and you've got sinful stuff in your bones. I get that. But the way we live our lives should be, should be on a path toward making those occurrences where it sort of brims up again, fewer and fewer in number. Yes. More, let me put one thing in the middle of that. We recognize it, we ask for forgiveness, but we also recognize it and we're not okay with it. Recognize it and ask for forgiveness every day and, not, and be okay with it. Oh, yeah, I sh shouldn't have talked to my wife that way, but I'm sorry, Lord. What does the Lord say? I freaking don't do that again. I mean, I, he doesn't. I mean, I, you could say, "Oh, he doesn't get tired with forgiving you." He doesn't get tired with forgiving people who really want to be forgiven. And if you want to be forgiven, you don't do certain things because you know it's not good for you. Yeah. Oh, um, and who are who fall into sin? I think I said um, what was the word I used? Weakness. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What you have to read into this is, is he's not repeating the word practicing, but he implies that because it's in the same paragraph. So what he's saying is, if you practice sin, you're lawless. And then it goes on. So read that. Practice sin, you're lawless. Now, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, which is sort of, um, it's an allusion to the practice of sin. 
So he is making a distinction between people who practice sin, don't care, and people who fall into sin, I had a weak moment. And, and oftentimes, um, like I said, that's hard to distinguish. Yeah. Destroy you. Yeah. yeah. Right. He sort of starts you off basically, which is you have sort of the contour of the Ten Commandments. Live in there. But then you're right, as you mature, you realize not that there's more than the Ten Commandments, but you realize the Ten Commandments in and of themselves entail so much more. It's not just don't cheat on your spouse. It's all these other 15 things that can take away from your own marriage, right? Somebody else have a hand up? Yeah. Yeah. And this is why, um, you know, we talk about spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines make a practice of what? Of holiness. Now, that doesn't mean you're doing something to gain holiness. It means the activity you're involved in is intrinsically a holy thing. And practicing holiness stands in opposition to practicing sin, right? This is why the church has always been a church that has fasted and not just in Lent. The reason you fast is that's a spiritual discipline, and that spiritual discipline practices holiness. Jesus fasted for 40 days, right? Practices holiness so that while you're practicing holiness, there's less chance that you can be practicing sin. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Hall of Famer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And that's the point. So you have to focus your attention on not practicing what is evil, but practicing what is good. No, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Well, and this is this is one of the this is one of the pitfalls of sort of a robust Protestantism. Robu- being robustly Protestant. Um, is focused primarily on theology and doctrine and not on the practice of the Christian life. So you know if you, if you have Jewish friends, for them, the spiritual life is as important, if not more, than the Hebrew scriptures. If you have an Islamic friend, what's the most important thing? The five pillars of Islam. If you have a Christian friend who's a Protestant, what's the most important thing? The inspired and inerrant word of God. Having the right line. Here's where you can learn a lot from the Catholics, because the Catholics have a very robust sense of dogma, doctrine, teaching, coupled with morality, virtue, truth. Um, And your Buddhist friend is on the path toward truth in his practice of morality. It doesn't mean he has truth. It doesn't mean he's a Christian. What it means is, He's one step closer than lots of people because he practices the virtues that Christians ought to practice. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And I do think, and I want to be clear here, it's not a Lutheran mistake. It's a Protestant mistake. Because Protestants are most concerned with having the right information. If we believe X, Y, and Z, we get to heaven. Instead of saying, we need to believe X, Y, and Z because something came way before that. Jesus, who walked around and talked and did certain things, and we ought to look like him, not like X, Y, and Z. Okay? So I think you're right. I think, I think we could learn a lot. And we do need to, it's interesting when you talk to Catholic friends who are involved in ethics and morality and virtue, it's almost like they're speaking a different language because we're not accustomed to that. Like we're not accustomed to making ethical decisions. We do it all the time, but we don't have a process in our head by which we make the right decision. Like, uh, you know, the outcome doesn't validify the means, right? So you don't do certain things just because of the end point, the outcome. We don't think that way. We just say, I'm saved by grace alone, so no matter what I do, the Lord's going to forgive me. Amen. Make a decision. That's actually, there's more to it than that. Exactly. Right. Yeah. We're concerned about the end point. We have to be more concerned about the means. I had a person at the Joy Group ask me about capital punishment. I don't actually care how any of you line up. I mean, I do care, but I'm not here to debate.
But they said, what's the Lutheran position? I said, I can be almost certain that Lutherans are open to the death penalty. And I know this because I think there's a CTCR document on it. But I think, I remember in college, a, a professor was very adamant that, um, as the Old Testament says, if you take a man's life, or if a man takes another man's life, he shall forfeit his own. Therefore, you could take the life of someone who's killed someone. The Catholic position is very different, but they come from a very ethical, virtuous, um, almost absolution standpoint, which is if someone is killed with capital punishment, they have no chance to make restitution. And therefore, we don't kill people. It's not even, it's not even oh, we might get someone who's innocent, and we don't want to kill an innocent man, although that's enough reason not to do it. But it's if you kill someone who's committed a crime, they have no chance to make restitution. Therefore, we don't kill someone because restitution is part of the Christian life, and we don't stop the Christian life. Well, so do Lutherans. <laughs> you're not making any restitution afterwards. <laughs> but you're right. But see how that's a, very different, that's a very different way of viewing a problem. You have a problem, you think about the ethics of it, the morality, the virtue involved. What's the absolute, what does that do for you? And we just say, if we kill the wrong guy, at least we can be forgiven for that. That's the bare minimum. That's true, but it's not everything. There's much more to it. I don't know where we're at. Nine-ish. Let's go to eight, because I, well, eight's a little scary, but we'll read it anyway and then pretend we forgot about it. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, again, whoever, this doesn't say if you sin, if you make a practice of sinning, you're of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You notice it doesn't say destroy the devil. If we destroyed the devil, um, the game would be over. Right? If you just took the devil away, it'd be over. <laughs> and sometimes we think, we wouldn't have to live. Yeah, exactly. But partly, but see, here's the, here's the point. The Lord sees value in his creation having a life. He's not just going to zap people into heaven because that's subhuman. So he says, Adam and Eve were intended to live a life. Therefore, my children should live a life. If I just nuke the devil, there's no life to live. So he doesn't just nuke the devil, but he takes away... Or you become a robot. Yeah. You know, if he just wanted robots, he would have created robots. He destroyed the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Let me say one thing. Had he destroyed the devil, he would have saved you by force and not as a gift. This is where Lutherans could do a little more with free will. After you've been redeemed, there is a choice you make every day. Who am I going to follow? And, and he can't force you to follow him. Um, but he gives you the choice, and he hopes you choose the right thing. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has not been born of God. Born of God, of course, happens at the font. This is why the Pope's baptismal font at the Vatican says, this is fertile ground. The font is. Spirit-soaked fertility, it says. Isn't that great? The baptismal font is where children are made. And it's where God gives his seed. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. There's no in-between. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay? This is like, love. you know, the greatest of these is love, or the greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Practice righteousness and all that that entails, say your prayers, what time is it? Say your prayers, go to church, live within the ten words, and additionally, love your brother. You can, you can do all those ethical things. Yep. And still love Exactly right. Yep. Exactly. There are lots of people who practice a virtuous life and don't love their brother. Um, but that's the mark of a Christian. It's both things. Because that's what Jesus did. Love one another. Verse 11. For this is the message, the sermon, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was, one of, the e who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Jealousy, Jealousy pride, envy, selfishness. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. <laughs> that's, here's the thing. That's extraordinarily comforting to me. 
It really is. It's like when David Scare said, and we've run this before, expect nothing in return. Or as St. Paul said a few weeks back in the epistle, you know, people, uh, people view us as the scum of the world. Right? Or at least think yes, at the very least they think you're strange. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So you found your spot in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's scary. You break the fifth commandment um, if you even have the slightest bit of hate in your heart for someone else. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So then it does become true. If you take another man's life, if you murder, you know, you'll forfeit your own soul. Okay? Yes, right. No, exactly. My point is, if you hate your brother, you murder. And if you murder, you forfeit your own soul. Well, and we got friends, we got some conflict here. In the, in the immortal words of Ted Cover in the first AOR meeting, friends, we have some conflict here. <laughs> I want to say, Ted, really? <laughs> yes, that's right. But again, it gets back to what he said earlier. So you got to read this all in progression. Is it, do you make a practice of murdering? or No, it's true. Do you make a practice of murdering, or have you fall, or have you accidentally killed someone and you want to bring them back to life? That's the difference. Okay? But you have to realize that every act of murder does harm you. And the only way to be healed is to be where the Lord gives his gifts. So there is a sense in which, you know, if you sinned, you should be at the Eucharist. It's not a this for that, um, but it's a this and so much more. Okay? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, again, I just, I, we had a whole discussion. The sacristy is where you can have the best discussions with the vestries before, the vestry before service. Part of the, part of the trouble with, um, well, you've heard this, that the world is always about 50 years behind the academic world. So what was talked about in academia 50 years ago now finds expression in the real world. One thing that was talked about in academia, especially theology about 50 years ago, was that the determining factor in the world and in the church and in the Bible is not the God who speaks objectively, but it's the Christian who hears subjectively. So truth became whatever I heard. If I didn't hear it, then the scriptures must not communicate very well. I'm the determining factor. Um, but with that, you also have then a misinterpretation of tons of words. So love becomes whatever that means to you. And to some people, love means you make me feel good. Some people lo to, love, so to some people, love means you say nice things to me. To some people, love is you do things for me. The biblical model, the objective understanding of love is very simple. You lay down your life for your friends. So, you know, most basically love is action, but love uh, as action means giving up your life for someone else. Yes. Yeah, and so you're loved by God first, but as the beloved, you love everybody else. Instead of saying, yeah, God loves me, but I expect other people to love me too. You can't have that and then have St. John say, don't be surprised when the world hates you. <laughs> right? It's like a train wreck. Yeah. And that, the Eucharist is a train wreck. Because you remember we pray at the end of the Eucharist, strengthen us in true faith toward thee and in fervent. So God strengthens your faith by delivering his gifts. And then he expects that in his coming down, you're going to be going out. But if you turn back in upon yourself, then there's a crash. And it's like, ah, right? It's very hard. This is not, so don't take this as, hey, this is easy. You all got to go home and just love your neighbor. This, this is freaking hard work. Yeah. Good, so now you have to define love. What does it mean to love them? The way you love people the most is to forgive people. Um, because the way you've described it means you'll accept them back into society, you'll have them over for dinner, you know what I mean? And this is, um, turn it off for this. There was, a, there was an article, 
Yeah, let me, let me, yeah. No, I, I got you, I, look, I, and I know where you're going, and I actually appreciate where you're going. Partly I want to be sensitive to the time, but let me say, no, but you're, you're given a very different example than she's given. What you've given is someone's had a bad day. Yeah, so you don't just say, I'm never going to talk to you again because you had a bad day. Well, yeah, but at some point, a bad year translates into practice and not weakness. And practice, because what happens then when you welcome someone back who's practices, who's practiced sin and hasn't come free of that? The practice just carries on. Yeah, you may have them over for dinner again, but it just keeps going. The other thing is, this is not brotherly love here. The word is not philios. The, world is ag- the word is agape. So he's not saying be friends with people, brotherly affection. What he's saying is have divine love which is not friendship. There are plenty of people Jesus says, that guy's not your friend, shake the dust off your feet, keep moving. Divine love means you have the love for them that Christ has for you, which is primarily the love of forgiveness. It's not the love necessarily of friendship. There are people Jesus isn't friends with. These are my friends, these are not my friends. Yeah. That's exactly right. Jesus calls you first and foremost to agape, which is forgiveness. He doesn't call you first and foremost to be friends. And and you have to decide whether or not the sin is a weakness or a practice. So there are all these things. See how tough this is? This is not just like, oh, I forgive me and it's great. Let's get back together again. Two things. You have to say, what is Jesus talking about? Agape, forgiveness. What's the sin? Practice or weakness? And then, here's the tough part, you don't often have sins as physically brutal as abuse or things like that in the church. You hope not. But you have to see that sins like gossip and are actually more physically and emotionally and spiritually abusive than even abuse. So I once said to someone, I said, when people manipulate other people in a congregation, spiritually, emotionally, even friendship-wise, that is the equivalent of spiritual rape. Because what they've done is they've taken advantage of someone to use them for their own pleasure, and then they have no need of them. And those sorts of things, let me say one more thing, Maddie, those sorts of things need to be forgiven, but that doesn't reestablish a friendship or even a relationship. Your relationship now, once you've forgiven, is between you and God. Make sense? Maddie, one more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. One last thing, Leslie. That's exactly right. Yep. So, you know, your takeaway is practice sin is different than weakness. Agape love is different than philios. And our responsibility to love is a responsibility to forgive. It's not necessarily a responsibility to accept again or to reestablish a relationship. Um, and we gotta, that, that's very difficult in real time. But start with Jesus and the way Jesus treats all of his beloved and then transfer that to your own life. Okay? You all Okay. All right, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back next week, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks, friends.